Hello, and welcome to the first episode of our new podcast series on education issues in the Appalachian region of the country. I'm Caitlin Howley, Director of Child Welfare and Education at ICF. Joining me today is my colleague, Dr. John Ross. John's roots are deep in the region, and his expertise, which centers on instructional design, online and blended learning, and planning for and implementing educational technology, is crucial in this time of COVID-19. So how are you doing today, John? Very good. Thanks for asking me to be here. Yeah, my pleasure. So what are some of the big issues that um, are really making it difficult for educators, families, and students in various communities across Appalachia to deal with COVID-19 and its resulting uh, public health restrictions? <clears throat> well, you know, I've been thinking about this a lot. And um, when I say things like uh, there's high poverty in the area, that there's lack of infrastructure, um, I think a lot of people will relate to that in other areas as well, not just Appalachia. And so <clears throat> it's not that um, any one particular aspect of living in the area is making it difficult for educators and families. Um, I think it's a confluence of issues. We, it's not that we don't have infrastructure, it's just that our infrastructure is often very limited or very tight. And when something like this happens, um, the chinks in the armor come very quickly. Mm -hmm. So um, as an example, um, I'm working with a school district in, it's the farthest west school district in uh, Virginia and working with some teachers there and they're really trying to do some great things. They're trying to do some problem-based learning and engage kids in their community and help them uh, develop projects that would go back out to the community. And all that kind of got put on hold because now teachers are driving buses because they had so few bus drivers. And then if bus drivers can't drive the bus anymore, then somebody has to. Um, right. Same thing, uh, substitutes. Um, some of my school districts, um, just there are no substitutes. And I know it's kind of strange to think a substitute in an online class, but sometimes you do need a substitute in an online class or or a lot of our, a lot of our schools are still going kind of the hybrid model with some online and some in class. It is this issue of having some infrastructure, but not really quite having as robust an infrastructure as everywhere else. Certainly broadband um, and access to the internet is a huge problem in many areas, not just in Appalachia, but one of my superintendents actually put out a memo in March and forbade any teachers in the district to use like videos or high bandwidth um, media because they could actually notice the network the, from the only provider that was available, they actually noticed the network slowing down when mm -hmm. uh, people were doing that. Mm -hmm. You know, it's interesting your, your um, observations about how the region has some in infrastructure, um, but not everywhere. And it reminds me, and this is <laughs> this might be a bit of a stretch for a quote, but it's from the science fiction novelist William Gibson. He said, the future is already here. It's just not evenly distributed. And I think uh, that yeah. is the case across Appalachia. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> you know, some of our, our regions can't even get cell phone service. So mm -hmm. don't even talk about broadband. Um, and if they can actually 
connect with people, that's a, a positive thing. But um, if you can't get cell phone service, you, you certainly can't get any internet. Mm -hmm. Right. But you mentioned the the issues associated with um, poverty, for example. And I mean, there's there's a long history, a long legacy of um, economic issues across the region. And as a result, you know, lots of students will have already experienced trauma, for example, from, you know, um, unemployment of their, their family members or um, fallout from the opioid, opioid crisis. Um, in, in what ways has COVID-19 made it more challenging for children from families throughout the region um, who, who were already experiencing trauma before the pandemic? <clears throat> yeah, I think um, a big issue has become that that lack of support, um, especially like uh, you mentioned medical kind of issues. Um, like many areas, we're just kind of overwhelmed in some places in terms of um, what supports people can be um, can obtain being uh, diagnosed uh, positively. I just heard my neighbor uh, is has tested positive, and um, they're not a young man. And um, our neighborhood's very close, uh, and that's something about Appalachia. You know, our neighborhood is really close and very strong, mm -hmm. and we don't know um, if he's going to be able to find the support he needs. Um, yeah. And so we're really concerned about that. Yeah, yeah, I think that is a notable feature. Um, of the of the region. I'm glad you brought that up. Which kind of leads me to the sort of next round of questions that I want to ask you, which is, you know, now we've kind of admired the problem um, in terms of what it presents for um, schools and families and communities and students themselves. But um, let's talk some about how people on the ground are working to address um, uh, the problems that are arising from COVID-19. So what are some of the ways that you've observed districts and schools trying um, to address these challenges? Well, <clears throat> I think teachers and um, everybody who's working in education, they're just truly heroic in their efforts to try to keep education going. Um, some of the things they're trying are just amazing. And they're, tr they're trying these things in other places as well. But um, I, uh, I do have the honor of being a part of this uh, network of schools, districts across the state, uh, the Virginia's for Learners Network. And my region is the Southwest Virginia um, area. And some of the things that these um, schools are trying just to make sure that education continues going is really wonderful. Um, of course, <clears throat> the first issue was um, schools in March became, they actually became the place where kids were fed, right? So they had to keep getting food out to kids and to families. For a lot of these kids, this is this is the only, maybe not the only, but this is a substantial amount of um, the meals that they get during a day. And so we hear people, you know, buses, buses driving around and dropping off, or they have pickup stations at um, schools. And I think, I think that was our focus at the beginning. And once we kind of got over that panic and we had those systems in place, we started to turn back around to trying to get to instruction. And of course, teachers are trying all different kinds of things. I've worked with some school districts that have said, we're just not gonna go online because we can't 
reasonably get to a large enough population. So we're going to figure out a way to get materials to kids in maybe a paper-based format or a packet or something. And so teachers volunteering to deliver these things, or when you're delivering food on a bus, you also deliver instruction and you pick up the packet from the kid the last time. Lots of teachers calling using different kinds of phone services um, to leave messages and to provide homework help. Um, they've really done a lot of things. Um, the bandwidth issue, a lot, of, a lot of places just bought devices. So in March, probably the world's largest series of purchase orders went out for <laughs> technology, um, which has also been a struggle because um, some of my districts didn't get them. And I know that's not just an Appalachian thing, but some of my districts didn't get their devices by the time school started. And you're half, half remote or you're fully remote and you don't have a device. I mean, that was a real challenge, but trying to get that access to kids. And so they're trying things like maybe extending the range of the internet signal from the school building so it goes farther out or um but that's still not really great like you know you and your mom and your little brother and sister get in the car to drive to the school to sit in the parking lot so that you could take turns um using the wi-fi for the one laptop i mean that's just not ideal um although schools are really trying to address that you know, it's interesting. I mean, the, these schools and districts are trying really hard to overcome these serious challenges. And um, you made a really good point when, when you and I were talking about this earlier, that the efforts that districts and schools are undertaking really are band-aids for problems that require um, solutions that are more systemic. Um, so do you envision that there will be any move, you know, as a result of this period of time for, um, in terms of creating more comprehensive, more structural solutions? Um, I think what's happening is the capacity at school districts is growing in terms of resources and uh, human capacity about to support learning in a non-ideal non situation. So how to continue learning going, even though we're not coming into school or we're not all coming into school or we're coming into school every other day, whatever that is. So <clears throat> there's a lot of that going on, but the schools are so dependent upon larger infrastructure that they have no control over. Mm -hmm. um, and I've sat in meetings where we've talked about bandwidth and why we can't get, you know, high speed internet to some of these regions and uh, some of its, you know, finances, some of its um, who's available to do it. Um, will there be a return on investment if we provide that information out there? So at some point, um, I think it becomes, it almost becomes thinking about if we, if every child deserves a free public education, mm -hmm. do they also deserve free access to that education? Mm -hmm. And do they, re do, do they deserve adequate access to that education? And they're, you know, and the telecommunications have done some things. They've, uh, in my area, they've opened up hotspots with no passwords for a while, and they made it some low cost, uh, like nine ninety five a month. But, you know, for some families, nine ninety five a month goes yeah. for you know meals for a few days, so they can't right. even afford that. Right. Yep. Um, it you know these are the kinds of questions that you know. Uh, they're not just technical questions. They're also kind of fundamental questions about 
democracy and and what what we owe our children and our families and communities. Yeah. Um, can can I, so I so every so I work in school districts all across the country, not just here. Um, I work mm -hmm. in some of the largest school districts in the nation, um, as well as very tiny school districts and pri private schools and um, just a wide range of things all across the country and in almost and in some state departments or with some state departments. Almost all of my conversations now include the word equity. Uh huh. And that's very interesting. Yeah. And so I think school educators and some policymakers are aware that this is an issue and they want to do something about it. Um, and equity has many sides and many facets. We just haven't really tackled that issue, I think, as you know, a society or a nation or multiple nations in such a way that we think that every kid deserves a free education that should be of high quality and they shouldn't have to give up something just to be able to, you know, get access to their learning or to the learning environment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think that is emerging from the a very interesting historical moment where we're sitting in, we're experiencing. Right. So right. all of these things that have been there, they've been, you know, these are continuous dynamics. They were suddenly revealed to so many people, including educators and education mm -hmm. leaders. That's so, you know, I'm, I'm so glad you brought that up because there's, there's one thing that we really learned that was revealed. I like your word revealed. One thing that was really revealed was what we were doing in schools was not really good for a lot of people. <laughs> yeah. A lot of kids were just not engaged. They didn't find it relevant. I mean, going back to the Gates, you know, survey decades ago about how most kids who drop out were just bored. Well, mm -hmm. those bored kids, March, they just didn't log in. Right. And now I've got school districts where, you know, they're, they've done pretty well. Uh, one down the road, they have a university in the town. And so a lot of, um, people who value education, and they have a high percentage of kids who have not come back to school since March. Yeah. You know, and they're calling parents and they're talking to parents and sending emails and they're just not getting traction. And the only reaction they're getting is the kids say, it's just not worth it. It's not relevant to me. I think they became very apparent in March. And so many people have said this, that we tried to do what we were doing before, but what we were doing before was like with a captive audience, right? Mm -hmm. So you could lecture to a bunch of kids in a classroom because they didn't have anywhere to go. And if they went somewhere, they got in trouble. But mm -hmm. now um, you try to lecture to a bunch of kids who are spread across um, you know, wide area. And if you're not engaging or relevant or important, they just turn you off. Mm -hmm. Yep. It's like teachers have lost the leverage that they had just by being there present physically. Right. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, so at the same time, um, there are a lot of teachers who are trying to, to do new things. And so they're going oh, yeah. back to um, thinking about what is really engaging and important about their content. Why do they do this? I mean, I became a teacher because I, I was a music teacher. I love music. It was so much fun. <laughs> and so that's why I did that. And I think that's why a lot of teachers become teachers. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe the accountability push kind of led them astray from that. But a lot of teachers are going back to why did I really enjoy um, reading and writing and how can I share my love of reading and writing or why did I enjoy physics or why did I enjoy whatever and so maybe taking a step back and thinking about can I engage my kids um, in a way that can 
you know, help procreate that uh, uh, passion that I have for what I was teaching. Mm-hmm. So have you seen some of that when you've worked with uh, teachers during the, the pandemic? Have you seen their, um, their instruction change? Um, um, yes, and sometimes no. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, and sometimes the no, the, some, the sometimes no's are um, teachers want to, but either don't get support to try new things, um, maybe from fear from the administration thinking, oh, we're not going to do well on that test, that test that measures only low-level cognitive ability, you know. They want to try new things, and there are some districts that are doing that. I was working with Buchanan County in um, far west Virginia and far western Virginia, not West yeah. Virginia. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, but, distinction. But actually, you have to drive through West Virginia to get to be <laughs> from where I live, um, which is interesting. Gor- a gorgeous drive. But anyway, um, they just did something simple. They, they, they did this um, no worksheet on Wednesdays. So it's no worksheet Wednesdays. And just that simple thing that we're going to now replace that with questioning and collaboration and interacting with each other um, was just a start there. So now they have pushed that into the idea of um, providing more authentic experiences throughout the week, not just on Wednesday. That was last year. So this year they're, they're expanding that. So, so here's an interesting uh, success story. That's one of my districts in the Virginia's for Learners Network their kids come either Monday, Thursday, Tuesday, Friday. So they don't see all the kids all the time. Um, but on Wednesday, Wednesday has become teacher planning day, teacher professional learning day. There's also homework help and tutoring time. And that has been so successful that the school district is hoping that when we're back in school um, in person, they can keep Wednesdays like that. I mean, that would be a huge change to just the basic schedule of what a school is, but it would provide that opportunity that many schools don't, which is ongoing professional learning for the adults. Um, so it's a really interesting model that I hope they can achieve when they go back to school. Seeing lots more uh, community connections and trying to make mm-hmm. kids understand that what they're doing in school can help prepare them when they leave school. And for a lot of communities in Appalachia, you I mean, you know this, that um, our kids go away. So these programs where they're trying to build up community connections now are so that our infrastructure will be more robust. We'll, you know, use our own kids. Our own kids will want to stay here. I mean, people, people live here for different reasons. Some people have lived here for generations. But like myself, I mean, I moved here and driving through Bland County to get to what to West Virginia, you know, through the tunnels. I mean, mm-hmm. it's just it's one of the most beautiful places I think in our country. Or driving out through Lee County, you know, far west Virginia, and so people and and like I said, my neighbors here. I, you know, I've lived all over the uh, country because my parents are military. I have never been as close to my neighbors as I am here. Mm-hmm. And we're all different ages. We're all, we're all not the same age, and we're all from different places. And so. <clears throat> You know, you come here for a reason and you want people, you want your kids to stay here and have that positive quality of life, but also have the other things that they want. Right. Sorry, that was a little rambling, but. No, but, but it's, it's, uh, um, well, it really resonated with me. I mean, and I, I understand the tension that 
Appalachian families feel about higher education in particular because of the tension that it prevents presents to particularly rural young people and their families. They, you know, everybody wants the best for their children. Yeah. Um, and yep. that might mean going to college. Um, but college might not be nearby. And yeah. then once you've gone to college, you become a different person. And also you may be uh, now have a degree that you can't use if you wanted to return home. Right. And that's just a hard place for families and young people to be, especially if they feel strongly attached to where they came of age. Yeah. So I, I, I see the tension for sure. Yeah. And a lot of kids, when they come to, like when I was at Virginia, Te at Virginia Tech, a lot of kids come there to try and change their life, you know, to mm -hmm. shun that background, change their accent, mm -hmm. try not to acknowledge. And there are, uh, you know, professors like at every university that try to encourage kids to, you know, that's an important part of you. Mm -hmm. um, try, you know, don't get rid of that. Um, mm -hmm. You can add to it, but, you know, keep sure. that part of you. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Well, I want to get down to um, something very practical, and frankly, it's about money. Um, how can educators in the region, particularly in rural places, leverage um, relief funds um, associated with COVID-19 to put into place some of the structures that you were talking about earlier to enhance virtual engagement and learning opportunities for students, even beyond the pandemic? Mm -hmm. So I'm certainly not the world's greatest expert on that, but I've seen some interesting things where um, there are funds that come to schools. So like there are Perkins funds that go for career and technical education programs. And there is, a, you know, there are opportunities now for um, schools to develop their own local infrastructure that could then support kids in those programs. So maybe, <clears throat> you know, expanding you know, hardware, networking, software, things like that, getting training for teachers that then could be leveraged by an expanded CTE program. I think you know, CTE programs have always been really important around here, but the CTE programs, at least in, in the experiences that I have, are kind of evolving. We're um, trying to catch up with the 21st century. And so now CTE programs are not just agriculture, or you know, business applications, but are going into IT management and networking and all those things that, um, yes, can get you a job somewhere else, but are also important at the local hospital or mm -hmm. for a shopping mall or, or whatever. So building that um, basic infrastructure so that later you can leverage the funds you know you're going to get might be a way that schools could um, use those funds. Mm -hmm. Well, I could talk with you about all of this stuff for much, much longer, but I think we're running out of time. So I will kind of wrap things up with one last question, John, um, which is, you know, imagine 10 or 20 years hence. Um, imagine that, you know, the pandemic has been dealt with. We have a reliable vaccine. What kinds of changes do you see happening in 10 or 20 years as a result of this um, national experience, but also the particular experience of it in Appalachia? What do you think will be different in Appalachia in terms of <clears throat> education, schools, community? 
that will happen or that I want to happen? <laughs> that is an, uh, an important distinction. Um, what would so, you want to happen? Well, I'll share with you. Um, uh, so I'm coaching a lot of different school districts right now through that Virginia's for Learners Network. And a colleague of mine um, shared this question that he's using with his teams. And he says, because of COVID, this happened, right? COVID came in and this happened in our school district. Um, and then we tried these things. We, we tried X, Y, and Z to kind of offset what happened by COVID. And then he asked them, of those things, what are you going to keep doing? What you should continue to do, and what I what I hope happens, is that educators everywhere, but especially here, realize that um, what we were doing wasn't right for everybody, and we have really expanded our toolkit. We have really changed the way we can interact with kids, that we can engage kids, that we can connect to communities, and then <clears throat> the way that we are trying kids to come back by making it more relevant and engaging. Let's keep that kind of thing going. And then let's let's realize that you know just because we're in Appalachia doesn't mean that our kids can't have the highest quality education possible. Um, we have uh, a district down the road is working on telementoring internships for kids so that they can work with um, big name IT companies regardless of their geographical proximity. Um, <clears throat> so I'm I'm hoping that we realize that we can now teach better that we have more tools to use and that we can engage kids more because this happened and that we don't think we have to go back to stand and deliver or more transmissive pedagogy, which uh, could be a whole nother podcast about why that's <laughs> not appropriate. <clears throat> but I'm th what I'm hoping is that we, we have learned from this how to make things better and that we don't just go back. We have to go forward. We have to, we have to, even when we're back in school, and I hope it's not 10, 20 years, even though we're back in school with everybody there, we're going to continue to do things differently. Well, I'm going to embrace that hope with you, John. So thank you very much. It's been um, fun, as always, to, uh, to talk with you. It's always illuminating. Thank well, you. Thank you for being such a big advocate for the area. Mm -hmm.